and welcome to the first study in uh, week two of this discipleship module on the kingdom of God. As we saw last week, one of the things that we're hoping to accomplish in this series is that we'll be able to think more critically about some of the polarized views that we are uh, surrounded with regarding what our ideal society ought to look like. That is, in the midst of all the competing cultural views that are increasingly presenting themselves as competing kingdoms, so to speak, we want to look at a different kingdom, a better kingdom. Uh, This is a kingdom, as was pointed out in the first session, where life is in harmony with God. And while we get glimpses of it today, it will ultimately be realized when heaven and earth are united at the end of time. In the last section, we explored the political and historical context immediately prior uh, to Jesus' uh, earthly ministry. And then we spent some time talking about Jesus and the kingdom. And what we found is that what Jesus said about the kingdom of God was much different from what most people expected it to be. Instead of a kingdom of dramatic political defeat, Jesus had inaugurated a kingdom where he would serve and lay down his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, when he left his throne in heaven to put on human form, did not become a glorious war hero who rode into battle on the back of a majestic steed, vanquishing his foes with a glinting sword of justice without so much as a scratch on his own body. No, he preached, he healed, he rode into battle on the foal of a donkey, bearing no sword. Instead of piercing others, he was pierced. Instead of killing his enemies, he allowed the enemies to kill him. How is it then that he could remain a king? What king has there ever been in history that continued to be a king in any real sense of the word after he died? It has never happened. And yet his followers have ever since talked about his kingdom as if it has never ended. Of course, we know how the story continued after he rose from the dead, and we'll explore more of the implications of that later on. But today, and in the next couple lessons, we're going to go back in time a bit from Jesus' earthly ministry and explore what the kingdom of God has looked like from the very beginning throughout Scripture and eventually even after Jesus' resurrection. And what we'll find is that one of the reasons that Jesus was able to remain a king after his seeming defeat is that he had been a king long before any of those Romans had been born. So let's go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, a passage that many of us are familiar with in in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. One of the first things we learn about God is that he is very powerful because the Bible says he created the heavens and the earth. And just in case we think that anything was left out of that phrase, heavens and the earth, Uh, we should recognize that that the phrase is just a literary device that that really just means everything, everywhere. That is, there's nothing in all of existence that was made apart from God making it. His authority over all creation is established when he speaks the universe into existence. Even before there's a word called king, God is king. He creates light. He separates light from darkness. He separates the waters below in the sea from the waters above in the sky. He creates land and separates it from the waters. And then he fills the land with plants. He places the sun and moon to be sources of light over the earth that he created. And in verse 16 of chapter 1, almost as if it were an afterthought, as if it required no additional effort whatsoever, all the stars in all the universe are added in. And then he fills the, the sky and the sea with animals. And when we talk about these first acts of creation, it's worth recognizing this. 
that even though we've jumped back in time thousands of years before Jesus' earthly ministry, we're still talking about Jesus. So the Gospel of John begins with these words. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And Paul says in Colossians that by Him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through Him and for Him. Let's go back to Genesis. After creating all these things then, without losing any bit of His kingship or authority, He creates humanity. And He delegates a lot of authority to people so that they would govern the world that He created. Coupled with His act of creating humankind in His image was His plan to make kings. It would be very easy to call Adam and Eve the first royal couple on the earth. Because God gave them the charge to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. In verse 28. And every human king thereafter in some way mimics that very first human king named Adam. Of course, he was not a king on the same level as the God who created him. Adam was appointed to the position, so to speak. Similar to how a political ruler today might appoint regional rulers, governors, or cabinet members, and so on. But coming back to the topic at hand, Adam's delegated authority in no way diminished God's kingship, nor did it lessen his kingdom. After Adam had sinned, God did not cease to rule over his creation actively. He showed his power over the waters when he brought the flood to destroy nearly all flesh. And he showed his tender mercy in bringing Noah above it all and placing a rainbow as a sign of his promise across the sky. And for the sake of time, we'll move along quickly. I want to exhibit just how strong and how common is this thread of God's kingship over all creation. After that initial act of creating, God would often exhibit his authority over his kingdom by temporarily suspending or supernaturally manipulating the order he had put in place. Long after Abraham had died, God spoke to another man named Moses, and he spoke to him from a bush that was alight with flames, but that did not burn up. When God, out of that same bush, told Moses to go speak to Pharaoh and set his people free from Egypt, Moses protested that he was not good with words, and God replied, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Pharaoh might have questioned Moses' authority, but he could not ultimately question God's authority, especially not after God had turned the water of the Nile to blood and brought on swarms of frogs and gnats and flies and locusts and extinguished the Egyptian livestock and caused boils to break out on everyone's skin and caused enormous hail to fall from the sky and brought such a darkness over the land that it could be felt. And finally, in the face of Pharaoh's bold, blind, and stubborn rebellion, he took away every firstborn child in Egypt. And these are just the signs that he showed Pharaoh. As Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt, they were unfortunately too stubborn themselves most of the time to recognize that God could bend any object in creation to his will. He parts the sea so that the Israelites cross on dry land, only to bring those waters crashing back down on Pharaoh's army in Exodus 14. He lets bread fall from heaven he brings water from a rock, even meat for eating, flies in almost out of nowhere. 
Some rebellious people are consumed by fire. Others are swallowed up in the earth. And after 40 long years of wandering, wandering, even then God stops up the river to allow his people to cross in Joshua 3. And he causes the walls of Jericho to crumble like dust so that his people may enter the land. When you list it out like this, it sounds ostentatious out of context. God is entirely in control of everything he created. His kingdom has no bounds. Unless we should think that this God of the Old Testament is a bit over the top and that gentle Jesus would never do these things. Jude, in the New Testament, in Jude verse 5, says explicitly that it was Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt and afterward destroyed those who did not believe. How much more could be said about this theme of God's kingship over all creation and that his kingdom encompasses all of heaven and earth. But we have to limit ourselves somewhere. So I'll end this session by drawing your attention to just a few additional passages. We want to keep in mind, uh, we want to keep them in mind for the same reason that Old Testament believers would have wanted to keep them in mind. God doesn't just exhibit his authority over all creation because he likes to flex his muscles, so to speak. He's got nothing to prove to us in that way. It's not in God's nature to flex his muscles like an insecure bully. He shows his authority for a few other purposes. First, we see him use his authority to sort of snap people out of a rebellious funk and get them to trust him. There are some other examples, even with Moses, but I think one of the best examples is his answer to Job at the end of that book. When Job, after suffering enormous loss, understandably questions God's action against him, God asks him in chapter 38, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And after more questions, Job simply shuts his mouth and repents. Second, by exhibiting his universal kingship, God is able to draw praise out of those who would otherwise be considered outside of his people. At the beginning of the book of Joshua, Rahab acknowledges to the Hebrew spies that the inhabitants of Jericho, she says, uh, she says, we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She was then saved from the city's destruction later on. And we often forget, forget about these ones, but God draws uh, praise for his own almighty kingship from the lips of even extremely powerful foreign kings. There are two examples of this in the book of uh, Daniel. First with Nebuchadnezzar, the, the Babylonian king in chapter 4, and second with Darius, the Persian king in chapter 6. For both of these, these kings, God uses his power over the created order to snap them out of stubborn rebellion and bring them into submission for their own good. And they both joyfully acknowledge then the living God's everlasting dominion. And finally, God's kingship over all things, and therefore Jesus' kingship over all things, is a source of praise for his people that is far more magnificent than if his authority were limited to a specific ethnic group or local politics or nation. From start to finish in the Psalms, God is praised as the king over all creation. And we could spend a lot of time going through all, all of the Psalms to see that, but Psalm 148 is, is perhaps just a, a really great, wonderful summary of that continual theme. The Psalmist says this, praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. 
kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven.